кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. One month after a short-lived armed insurrection directly challenged Vladimir Putin's rule, the man who orchestrated it all is still roaming free. Evgeny Prigozhin's Wagner mercenary group, meanwhile, has set up a base in Belarus less than 500 miles from Moscow. And according to Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko, they are making noises about attacking Poland. Like Vladimir Putin's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine 17 months ago, the Wagner rebellion and its aftermath appears to be a paradigm-shifting event that has upended many of our assumptions about politics in Russia and its environs. So how should we understand this new reality? Well, I got just the guests to help us break it all down, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Vilnius, Lithuania, one of my favorite cities in the world, is leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and For a Russia Without Lawlessness and Corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Energy Ministry. Welcome back to The Vertical, Vladimir. Hello, Brian. Many thanks for having me again. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, Vladimir, the past month has been pretty damn dizzying, uh, even more so than the past year. Evgeny Prigozhin launched an arms insurrection against the regime and not only got away with it so far, but even got an in-person meeting with Putin just days later. He even turned up in Moscow this week at the Russia-Africa summit. Uh, there's all, there have been some scattered arrests, most notably Igor Girkin, Aka Strelkov, and General Sergei Sadovikin, who remains missing. But the widespread purge many were anticipating has yet to be to, to materialize. Putin has tried to project the image of a leader in control, meeting this week with African leaders in Moscow, and boasting prematurely that Russian forces have stopped Ukraine's counteroffensive, but something seems off. It's as if all of our assumptions and priors for understanding the politics of this regime either do not no longer apply or apply in a very different way uh, than we're accustomed to. To get us started, how do you see the lay of the land post-insurrection? Was this a paradigm-shifting event as I see it? Because that, that's how I pretty much see it right now. It was a paradigm-shifting event indeed, because it shattered the whole notion of security that Putin has been promoting for nearly a quarter of a century in power. He actually came to power suggesting security as the alternative to our chaotic 90s, and this was basically his main slogan, like, you give up your rights, you give up control over businesses, you give up everything, but I provide you with security, you're going to feel secure. And here we have uh, some unknown armed people who are actually taking control of major cities. Rostov-on-Don is the uh, 11th biggest Russian city. And moreover, uh, they took control over the heavily militarized headquarters of the southern military district. This is actually where two Chechen wars have been waged from, these headquarters in Rostov. And also this is the, the de facto headquarters of the military operation against Ukraine. This is where Putin held meetings with generals discussing how it is going. So how sacred that can be, you know. And uh, uh, actually, people in Moscow are asking these questions right now. So if uh, Putin has everybody more or less capable of uh, defending, of uh, combat action being stationed out there in the front in Ukraine, who is left here in Russia? So like it means that everybody can come, our big friends from the southeast, might think that they want to take some chunks of Siberia or whatever. But clearly it feels that uh, you know, the deficit of personnel for Putin is really biting. He's not providing security as he promised for all these decades. And this is uh, an, an event which will significantly influence the mindset uh, of the Russian elite. Putin really felt weak the way he wasn't ever before since he came to power. Yeah, and I want to drill, drill into that in, in a little bit about what this is doing to Putin's overall authority. But one thing that I'm still grappling with, Vladimir, and I just I can't still can't wrap my head completely around this, 
why the leniency towards Prigozhin? Does he have something on Putin that Putin that, 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 that is frightening Putin? Has he infiltrated the elite uh, to the extent that, that coming after him would be destabilizing? Is it because Russia has interest in Africa and Prigozhin is kind of central to, to Russian operations in Africa? What is leading to the leniency? Because I thought he was a dead man walking when, this, when, when, when his insurrection kind of uh, fell apart. I still think he's a dead man walking, but Putin is taking his time for okay. two reasons. First, uh, Putin does not really understand the residual power, the hard power of Wagner. What can they do in retaliation if Putin does something to Prigozhin? And they already shown the very strong, significant capability a month ago, So, which, is, which makes Putin afraid. He, he will definitely take action against Prigozhin and he will execute his revenge, but later. Uh, right now, I think they are going through scrutiny FSB is profiling all the remaining Wagner fighters like uh, who might be loyal and reintegrated into Ministry of Defense formations and who needs to be uh, persecuted and isolated somehow. Before they finish that job, I think Putin will take no action. That's point number one. Point number two, uh, Putin realized that Prigozhin had developed uh, some form of legitimacy, some popular support in certain circles of the Russian population, and this is a very vulnerable situation with the economic difficulties, with difficulties at the battlefield in Ukraine. He doesn't want more people to get alienated and uh, to lose more popular support by attacking a guy who has some support base in the Russian society. He wants uh, this to be done uh, maybe some distant, calm manner like Putin will have uh, no relevance to it. Something happened somewhere in Africa, I don't know. So he will take his time uh, so, uh, to sum up two things. He's afraid of the residual power of Wagner. And second, he, do he doesn't want uh, to harm his own public positions by attacking a popular figure who was criticizing corruption and criticizing the ineffective army generals and so on. How deeply do you think Wagner has infiltrated the, the security services, the military, and the broader elite? There, there clearly is some level of support there, but it's hard to gauge how much. What, what's your sense? I generally don't see much of it. I have to say I had a lot of interviews this past month with some of my acquaintances in Moscow. We worked together in government long ago. Generally, I have the feeling that uh, two things. First, nobody in the elite trusts Prigozhin. Uh, which is why when we speculate that he might have had some allies within the system, we got to be really very careful because this is the answer I get. We don't trust this man. He's lying all the time. There is no guarantee if you bet on him, he would not flip around when, when he gets uh, his goals uh, achieved. And second, I think there's there hasn't been many illusions uh, that Wagner can really, like, I don't know, take Moscow, whatever, with several thousand fighters, even capable, trained, and, oh, yeah. and experienced, no, they really did not. Uh, this this was largely a blackmail show. Uh, Prigozhin uh, probably uh, put a bet to get some security guarantees for himself by taking Rostov and big chunks of the territory and doing this march on Moscow. It doesn't look like taking Moscow was his real goal. There was no manpower, basically. So I don't think that many people in the elite were siding with him. However, it is the boldness uh, of the Wagner mercenaries. I mean, you really got to appreciate these were the really out of touch uh, people who had uh, extreme combat experiences in the past decade in Syria, Africa, Ukraine, and so on. So they uh, have demonstrated that they have the boldness that the general security apparatus don't have. Security apparatus waits for orders, and these guys can just, I mean, proceed with uh, their goals. So this, the, the boldness uh, was uh, uh, taken as a shock by people in the system. I think that was the major effect of Prigozhin's march. And it's the sense that he wasn't trying to overthrow the regime. He was trying to get rid of Shoigu and, 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 uh, and Gerasimov. That seemed to be what he was, he was trying to intimidate Putin into, into sacking them is, is my take. I don't know if you would agree with that, but it, I don't think he planned on taking Moscow. I think it was an attempt to get to change the military leadership. I think prim primary goal was probably protecting himself because I believe that he received some sort of information that because of his progressing standoff 
with the Ministry of Defense, there was some sort of decision to terminate him, whatever that means, arrest or, or worse, uh, we don't know. Because uh, tensions were really escalating, and before his mutiny, a couple of weeks before, there was an order signed that uh, Wagner units basically uh, integrate into defense right. and precaution disobey. So this disobedience probably led to some uh, some critical point when they made a decision to do something against him. So he was trying to trade off some guarantees for himself. I really think that all these demands about uh, Shaigu and Gerasimov were a sideshow in this regard because he, mm. he quickly jumped out of the game immediately after he received guarantees from an independent, semi-independent third party like Lukashenko. Guarantees he's opting out right away, which means that to me it looks like this was his primary goal. Now, we were expecting, or at least I was expecting, a, a major purge um, following following this. And we haven't seen much. Uh, Gherkin was arrested last week, also known as Svetlkov, uh, and, uh, and uh, Suravikin is still missing. Uh, but there hasn't been this widespread purge. Why do you think that is the case? Again, it's the same reason Putin has, hasn't gone against Prigozhin himself, uh, because there's a fear of the shock that, that would create for the system. Yes, I think Putin, there will be a purge, definitely, uh, but Putin will proceed carefully. Uh, there was enough shock for the Russian society and the elites during the mutiny itself. So Putin doesn't want to stir the situation anymore. He wants to do it carefully, take his time. Uh, and also, again, I think for him, uh, this was an unexpected development. Uh, so he wants to study first, like, who was behind, who was involved, and... Uh, 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 he wants FSB to profile all the potential traitors or whatever, but definitely he, he already began uh, with Girkin is one of the clear examples, and the purge would continue. We will see more of that uh, in the coming years. Just, I mean, remember Stalin. Uh, repressions uh, did not take place immediately after Kirov's murder. It took, you know, several years, So, but and they were escalating over time. So I think same logic here. Uh, Putin definitely will will execute a purge, but he will proceed also carefully not to not to cause more harm to himself along the way. Yeah, there's a lot of concern. Uh, concern. There's a lot of uh, speculation that a purge would be very disruptive to the system, and that's kind of giving Putin pause right now. It's not just that he's biding his time; it is that he's concerned that a a pur the the system's too fragile right now, and a purge. Would 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 uh, would be could be potentially destabilizing. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. There's also uh, we should understand that there are mounting problems on different fronts, mounting tensions between different groups of influence, both within the military and outside, and so on. So he really got to be very careful. He doesn't want to add uh, more chaos here, and uh, this is why purge will happen, but he will proceed carefully. Right, right. And what I want to do now, Vladimir, because it's, it's the, the theme I kind of set out at the beginning. All of our, uh, this has called into question, for me at least, all the assumptions I had had, or not all of them, but many of the assumptions I had had about how to understand Russian politics. You and I, I think, basically view it the same way. Uh, throw out your political science textbooks and read The Godfather and watch, watch Goodfellas. This is a crime syndicate masquerading as the state. And the but the but but crime syndicates have logic in the way they operate, right? And the way the Putin crime syndicate operated was that Putin was the godfather in the middle, surrounded by underbosses who were at each other's throats. And his role in the system was to balance these different feuding clans in his court. And that was the source of his power. Everybody trusted him to be a broker between the different clans. And it, it was understood that he was capable of balancing the different clans. This is, um, with the exception of the Siloviki War back in 2007, which, which didn't go anywhere near this far, this is the first time I can remember when Putin's basically lost control of this. So what is, should we change our priors about how we look at this regime right now, how we analyze it? Has something really fundamental shifted in the, in the underlying way we should understand how this regime operates? No, no, I think we still have pretty much the same mafia, with the same mafia boss trying to act as an arbiter. 
but he's failing over and over again because of the fundamentals, uh, because uh, his capabilities are no longer as they were just uh, several years ago. He has major difficulties in the military, in the economic sphere, uh, which is what, I, I mean, interestingly, I believe that this whole conflict between Wagner and in the Ministry of Defense originates in the economic problems which were caused by sanctions, in the lack of money, because it started with uh, Prigozhin complaining about the deficit of artillery shells. If they just had a little more uh, financial capability, there would have been no deficit of artillery shells. So this is one of the areas where we actually see uh, financial constraints biting. And uh, if, if you listen to whatever military people say about the difficulties at the front, with supplies, with logistics, and so on, uh, the the hint is very simple: money. There is significant mm -hmm. lack of money and financial capability to wage a war of that scale. Putin was basically never preparing for that. He was preparing for a swift three-day shock and all march uh, taken Kiev and, and, and so. There are no simply no resources for such a large-scale protracted conflict which is why they begin squabbling between themselves. And this did not finish with uh, uh, quashing the Wagner revolt because it continued with the resignation of uh, General Popov from the right. post of the 58th Army. His audio, this is like very reminiscent. We only heard that in the 1990s when generals were complaining about how Yeltsin is handling the right. first war. So basically we're back on their territory and all these difficulties, all these failures in the system, all this um, deficit of uh, finance, uh, basically this comes together when Putin is no longer able to act as like ever capable mafia boss. He's clearly objectively failing on many fronts. Well, this is what the, and, and this is what I'm driving, what probably has changed. I think you're right. The general framework for understanding this hasn't changed, but the role and the capabilities of the players is changing. And as you know, in any kind of any mafia organization, power is the reputation for power. Putin had power because he had the reputation for power. Has his reputation for power suffered as a result of this? And does that have repercussions going forward? I mean, I am really reluctant to predict the end of this regime. Um, a lot of us have made the mistake of doing that in the past, and we've always been wrong. Um, one of these days it's going to fall, though. And I, I personally have never seen Putin's power apparently diminished to the extent that it, it, it has. How do you see that? Has his reputation for power suffered? His reputation suffered big time. And I have to add that in the past month, there's really been a bad month for him because it was not just precaution. Uh, there are mounting economic difficulties and central bank just raised the interest rate with a very grip commentary about what is going on. But, you know, uh, when I get the feedback from my sources in Moscow, you know, I think one development which probably shocked them even more than Prigozhin's mutiny is South Africa's rejection to host him at the BRICS. Right. Uh, that is a major geopolitical failure because Putin is trying to present himself like, look, okay, the West is against us, but the rest I can control. I mean, uh, the rest of the world will be with me. And here's South Africa which is perceived as an ally, effectively, a very pro-Chinese, pro-Russia government, you know, uh, insistently rejecting to, to allow him to uh, arrive in Durban at the summit after the blow suffered with Prigozhin mutiny. Too many blows, don't you think? So, so his authority really was undermined. Uh, during, during Wagner riot, it was visible that he was not in control. He was hysterical. He was doing all these twists and turns from the promise to crush them, to actually letting them go with, without any harm and uh, like total forgiveness and, and so on. This, I mean, uh, solid mafia boss who is in control does not allow hysterical twists and turns like that. So people were carefully watching and uh, they really understood that uh, this is like a Wizard of Oz uh, situation. Right are not really as they seem and Putin is not in control of things as he wants it to, to look from the outside. Yeah, it, it, the, uh, I mean, half of the Africa leaders that came to the summit this week did not show up, um, number one. Putin seems to be losing support in Africa because of pulling out of the Ukrainian grain deal. We had these reports coming out that he was actually in a state of panic 
um, as the um, as 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 the um, as 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 the rebellion uh, unfolded. Um, the other thing I wanted to drill into was the arrest of Gierkin, because I find that kind of interesting. Now I have heard, maybe you have heard this too, that Gierkin's Krisha was essentially the FSB chief Bortnikov. We both know that Bortnikov is uh, affiliated with Patrashev, and then that's a direct line to Putin. So I had always assumed that Girkin was well-protected. He had a powerful Krisha in the elite. I go after Girkin. What's the point of that? Because he was stirring the public opinion. Believe it or not, Putin really cares very much about public opinion. This is actually why he never went after Prigozhin uh, following the revolt. Uh, this is why he never announced a second wave of mobilization, despite the fact that he badly needs it. He mm -hmm. badly needs these new people uh, on the front lines, but he, he he's hesitating because the public reaction to the first wave was so bad that he prefers not to. He didn't shut down the borders. Mm -hmm. He didn't shut down YouTube. Uh, many things. He, he really cares about public opinion, and Girkin is one of the folks who is shaping the, the uh, public opinion on the far, far right, what do we call it, turbo-patriot uh, segment. Mm, right. Recently, all of them have been turning against Putin and uh, went to publicly criticize him personally and expose the failures of the system. Like Girkin, just a couple of weeks ago, he was openly saying that we're just a few steps away from a major collapse of the front in Ukraine because uh, the, the morale of troops is really bad and there are no reserves. Everybody is exhausted after months of fighting and there is no, no rotation, no replacement. Uh, they decided, after Prigozhin mutiny, uh, Putin and his inner circle, they decided to shut it all down. All the critique, uh, all, all these uh, discussions about uh, uh, things going wrong and Putin not governing properly and so on. But... As I said in the beginning, uh, he considers Prigozhin too powerful uh, to be attacked. So he decided to begin attacking the ones who are much Boxes. weaker, like like right. Yurkin and so on. So and, and, so and this is not the end story. I think it's just the beginning. And, and, and so having a Krisha as powerful as Bortnikov and by extension Patrushev was not sufficient even in that situation uh, to protect Yurkin from anything like that. I think whatever Karisha Girkin had, he crossed certain red lines. Because right. I also believe whatever Karisha was there, there should have been uh, an agreement that Girkin does not cross certain red lines, does not openly criticize Putin, and actually keeps his overall criticism of uh, uh, Russian military within certain limits. He clearly went off limits, uh, which to me looks like he, he had broken whatever protection right. contract. Okay. Now, it wasn't just the far right that Putin went after this week. Uh, Boris Kagarlitsky, the, the, the very left-wing sociologist, was arrested this week. Do, does this fit into any of this, or is this just, this just more of your run-of-the-mill repression against criticism of the war? I, I just I couldn't help but notice Kagarlitsky being arrested this week. Did, did, how, how did you read that? No, it, it fits exactly into this process because I think after after Wagner mutiny, one of the major decisions that Putin and his Security Council have made that we let this criticism of the military operation go too far. We let it to become too public. Uh, we let it to become too igniting for people to take action mm. against uh, top people in, in government and military positions. So we need to shut it all down, uh, which is why I think at the moment uh, they, they they probably uh, have uh, put up some sort of a sketch plan and go person after person, whoever was still in Russia and uh, opening his mouth too much, be it on the left or on the right, I think they will go after all of them uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. So we'll see more of that from very different uh, so this gets, it's, 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 seems to be going to a very dark place. Um, before we dive into the second half, where I want to kind of get into Wagner in Belarus, which is a whole nother piece of this puzzle. There is this minor matter of the Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, stepping up uh, in, in, uh, in Zaporizhia this week. Um, they're making limited gains. Uh, there have been no breakthroughs. They haven't breached the Russian lines yet. But 
if we see a success in Zaporizhia, if Ukraine manages to breach the Russian lines, if they manage to split those Russian forces between North and South, what kind of a blow? I mean, that seems to me with the regime as brittle as it is at the moment, that could be a fairly decisive blow. We, we could have a, a 1917 scenario. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think this is coming sooner or later, whatever, in Zaporizhia or elsewhere. I think one of the successes of Ukrainian counteroffensive was that they were actually able to uh, to force Putin to, to defend uh, on a very long uh, uh, front line. You never know where, where will be the point. Ukrainians are trying to find weak spots. Maybe yeah. they will, most likely they will be in Zaporizhia, but could be elsewhere as well. So that's one of the successes that the fighting is really going on along the long front lines, right. which uh, which makes Putin disperse his remaining combat-capable troops along really great legs. So that's a major challenge. That's a major problem. So let's see how it goes. But uh, again, I would I would agree with Girkin on this. With total lack of able, uh, capable uh, combat-ready reserves, uh, wherever uh, front collapse or breach happens, that might cause like a major uh, dire consequences uh, for Putin's military. And uh, Ukraine is just trying to find this weak spot. Yeah, and uh, all eyes are on Zaporizhia, of course, because Ukraine has put uh, the the plan has been to push towards Melitopol or Berdyansk there in the south east. But it could happen anywhere as the uh, the fate towards Kherson and then the move on, on, on Arkiv last uh, last fall taught us. But what what kind of effect would this, do you think this would have on the domestic politics of Russia, on this very fragile situation Putin has as this wounded mafia boss who can no longer kind of control the clans? Would this, would, would, could this be a decisive blow to the regime? It could be, but I think we need to put to rest all this, uh, you know, direct streamlining of because when something bad for Putin happens, we immediately begin to talk about the collapse of the regime. I mean, listen, there is there is a distance between point A and point B. We need not to artificially shorten it. My vision is that uh, Putin is experiencing a series of uh, very significant micro crises. Micro, not in the sense that they're small, but in the sense that uh, they alone could not topple the regime. But they're significant enough for people to notice, uh, to expose the weakness of uh, Putin's uh, system and authority. So this mi micro crisis will multiply. It will be the economy. It will be the, the internal squabble. It will also be Ukrainian successes on a battlefield. Each of these micro crises actually shortens the route uh, for for the this, you know final test for the right. when on how it will happen we don't know but we need more of this micro crisis coming and sooner or later i mean there's law of physics uh the the this the blow to the system will be so significant that it will not stand but but we we don't know when and where exactly right and the underlying fundamental of this is this kind of damaged reputation for power uh, which is which is fatal for any um, any any organized crime leader, which is the way which is the way to look at this. Well, we'll leave it at that on that part, and we'll we'll shift gears into the second uh, half. We're going to talk about Belarus in a few moments. We'll continue our discussion and look at the potentially destabilizing presence of thousands of Wagner fighters in Belarus and what that may mean going forward. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Burner podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Vilnius, Lithuania, which is one of my favorite cities in the world, is leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milorov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and For a Russia Without Lawlessness and Corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Energy Minister. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical, but you can also follow us now on threads at Power Vertical. 
Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте Россия сегодня сейчас. вступает Привет. в силу поправки Это Навальный, я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... Гонов вас. С новым веком. So somewhere between 3,450 and 3,650 soldiers have traveled to a base 230 kilometers or 140 miles north of the Ukrainian border in Belarus, according to Belaruski Hayun, an activist group that tracks troop movements within that country. And in what appears to me, at least, to be a carefully scripted psyop designed to rattle nerves in the West, Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko told Putin that these Wagner fighters are talking about attacking NATO member Poland. Vladimir, how do you view this situation with the Wagner fighters in Belarus? How do you view the implied threat against Poland? Are they are, are these fighters a tool for Putin to control Lukashenko, to intimidate the West, to launch fresh, a fresh assault on Ukraine from the north? Or is he just glad to have them the hell out of Russia and in Belarus? How do you view this situation? How do you see it going forward? First, I think Putin's primary goal was to get them out of Russia. Mm -hmm. Get this loyal part of the Wagner group, which still can be dangerous and can continue attacks or whatever. Uh, he wanted them out of Russia. That was the essence of the deal, that trilateral deal that they reached uh, with Lukashenko a month ago. Uh, the, uh, the primary goal is to make sure that these people are not on Russian soil and not dangerous anymore, will not plot anything against uh, Putin's government. But the big open question, I think it's still an open, undecided question, uh, what to do with them next. Uh, I believe that ultimately, at the end of the day, they will end up somewhere else, and most likely in Africa. And Lukashenko is clearly unhappy uh, with their presence there. Yes. The that he openly complained to Putin. Yes, of course, he invented this whole story about uh, them wanting to attack Poland. But I think the, the, the essence of his speech was that he, he clearly said that he wants them out and, and they are ticking on his nerves. That's, that's the thing. So uh, as far as their military potential, uh, potential is concerned, I don't think it is significant and particularly We do not see that they have been allowed in in big numbers, but I'm not sure that they possess all these necessary weaponry you know, that they had when uh, they were stationed in Ukraine. So I'm, I'm sure that they are at this moment short of weaponry to attack anybody, which is why and the, the numbers are not significant uh, in military terms to consider them dangerous for attacking Ukraine from the north or attacking Poland or Lithuania. However, what they are really capable of is crossing uh, through a border in uh, some numbers, I don't know, two, three, several hundred people, and engaging in some sabotage uh, on the territory of either Ukraine or NATO countries uh, neighboring Belarus. That is fairly possible, but, you know, being right now in this part of the world exactly, Uh, I'm aware that the governments of these countries are taking care uh, of these risks, and I'm sure that they are, however dangerous and risky this is, I'm sure that they are prepared and uh, they, there will be a response if that happens. Do you think they would dare mess around in Poland or Lithuania? Again, we're talking about NATO here. Um, are they rogue or would they be doing so with Putin's tacit consent? How do you, how do you view that? I mean, if you see some operation in Poland... Yeah, Wagner's always existed to give Putin plausible deniability, but nobody would believe it in this situation. How, did you think they'd dare try something like that? No, I think they're uh, definitely good as a blackmail chip. Uh, actually, I think more, more dangerous uh, threatening doing that than actually doing it. Right, right. Uh, but so so uh, we will see more of that drama come in the coming weeks and months, and uh, Putin will use them as a blackmail too. Uh, I think generally Putin's game is to wake up the sleeping or not so sleeping giant in, in, in Europe, uh, people who will be calling again for some sort of peace talks. Uh, let's freeze the conflict. Let's do the 38 parallel. Let's leave Putin his uh, occupied territories because, because of many risks, because of the grain deal, because of the Wagner threat because the conflict is taking too long and the counteroffensive, as some say, is not so successful. 
So he wants to await this negotiation for Europe, in which regard the threat from Wagner is a serious and credible one, right? But, uh, I mean, uh, I would be very serious about uh, the threat as such. It might happen. These people have already shown many times in, in different occasions that they're crazy. Um, so, so there need to be a, a thorough contingency plan for this sort of event. I personally think it's not likely, but you never know. And preparedness is the answer to me. Yeah, no, it, I, I mean, I worry about them going rogue in this situation and creating creating an incident uh, on the territory of a of a NATO country. I wanted to dive into because this the the interesting one of the interesting figures that's not getting a lot of analysis right now is Lukashenko himself and his relationship with um, as we know, like prior to 2020, Lukashenko had been kind of playing this game, flirting with the West to, to, to squeeze more subsidies out of Moscow. That all came to an end in 2020. Um, that all came to an end in 2020 when, when Lukashenko, after after the protest, was forced to kind of leap into into Putin's arms. And since then, we have seen what, only, what I can only describe as a soft, a slow creeping soft annexation of Belarus, the steady expansion of Russia's military, economic, and political footprint in Belarus to the point where I was doubting that Lukashenko had any agency at all. But this situation now, his role in the resolution of the Wagner insurrection, um, and the, the presence of Wagner on his territory is beginning to make me wonder if the dynamic of the relationship between Putin and Lukashenko isn't changing yet again. I don't have a lot of data points to go on this, but it's just a kind of a gut feeling I have. How do you see this? Because I, I I don't see how this cannot change the uh the the dynamic between Putin and Lukashenko. Is he a full client now? Does he have agency? How do you see it? I think you're right. Uh, the the tide is turning for Lukashenko, and uh, that's a moment of a lifetime which I think he will uh, not waste to seize upon that uh, Putin is really, because of all this situation, Putin is talking to him as a sort of an equal figure, or at least something like that, right? Never happened for quite a long right. time. Re he was really drifting towards like a, a full dependence uh, on Putin and really just a ruler and name only. But uh, this had given him much more credibility. I'll he I think he will seize upon it. Interestingly, when uh, Prigozhin's mutiny unfolded, Putin also began calling other leaders. He first called Takayev and Mirziyoyev in, in Central Asia, and I think Lukashenko was the third. So he uh -huh. was probably looking for some sort of intermediary to settle the matters with Prigozhin and end the mutiny as uh, quick as possible. So I think Lukashenko jumped in, and he really understand this negotiation has been uh, uh, taking part for a great deal of the day on June 24th. So I think Lukashenko has really proven himself very useful to Putin, which sort of elevates his status against all the trends uh, uh, of subjugation that you have been describing, right? How he uses that, I mean, let's see. But when they met recently, uh, Putin and Lukashenko, clearly it looked that they are much more equal than they were in the previous months and years. Yeah. Now, what is that going to mean in practice, really? I mean, because this is, Putin does not treat leaders of any former Soviet state as equals. He looks at them almost as regional governors, if you will. How, how do you, what, what is that going to mean in practice now? If, if Lukashenko is more of a, is, is, is I'm not going to say equal yet, but, 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 but more equal than he was uh, a month ago, uh, do you see this changing the true dynamic of the relationship, or is Russia still going to basically get its way in Belarus? Well, uh, let's see how the whole, you know, picture develops, because the weaker Putin gets, the more room for maneuver. I mean, domestically, after all this uh, that we have been discussing here, all the military difficulties, the economic difficulties, internal struggles, and so on, that's clearly wearing Putin out. And the weaker he gets domestically, the more chance there will be for Lukashenko to research as a sort of semi-equal figure. I think he also has this gut sense of uh, usefulness. Okay, Vladimir Vladimir's got trouble, I'm here to help. That kind of elevates his status. 
I think he senses the opportunity and he will seize upon it because he clearly is an experienced guy. But but it will not extend to him kind of pushing back on the expansion of Russia's footprint in Belarus because this is this is everywhere from like the presence of Russian troops to Russian oligarchs buying up Belarusian assets, uh, the kind of the creation of political parties that are pro Kremlin. There's a lot going on in Belarus um, that have been it's been that's been basically this expansion of Russia's f- footprint. It's unclear if Lukashenko really liked this or had really no choice in it. But do you see a possibility for him to push back? He had been resisting a lot of the things Russia was after prior to 2020. After 2020, he was, of course, significantly weakened. Can he turn the clock back or or, or does does he even want to? I think he will first try to establish himself as the useful guy uh, in the environment where Putin's authority is waiting. Uh, when when he establish a little bit more uh, renewed authority with Putin, then there will be more room for maneuver for him to push back against all of these different uh, different angles of Russia's pressure on Belarus. I think he, he we're not there yet. His primary goal at the moment is uh, to come up as a you know very useful uh, ally assistant. Uh, whom Putin will respect a little bit more than he did in the past few years. Once he establishes that position, there will be more opportunity and leverage for him to push back on all these other uh, forms of Russian pressure. Right. And of course, looming over all of this, there have been persistent rumors about Lukashenko's health. Um, there, there, the, 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 He doesn't look well, just to, to, to say the least. But I've been hearing rumors about his health for a long time, which make me wonder if a transition isn't in the offing in Belarus. Um, which really would throw a lot of things up in the air. Uh, Belarusian civil society has become, has become increasingly active. Belarusian public opinion is becoming increasingly pro-Western and less pro-Russian. Um, and if you had a succession in that environment, now this is highly speculative, but I, I don't think it's like off-the-wall speculative. I mean, I've been hearing these rumors from very credible sources in Minsk for a long time about Lukashenko's health. If there is a succession, does Russia have the bandwidth to manage that succession? Or would it? do you see it spinning out of their control? Because it would be really ironic if you thought, like, the beginning of 2022, 100th anniversary of the founding of the Soviet Union, Russia seemed to have Belarus in its clutches. And it was moving on Ukraine. And now it looks like it might be in a position where it could lose both. How do you, how do you see that? Well, we actually had a discussion, a big debate about this for one hour at the Bill Sub television. What happens if Lukashenko dies? Now, I think that uh, Moscow at least thinks that it is fully prepared for this situation. They've been doing a very careful profiling of all the major figures in, in the, uh, Lukashenko's entourage and uh, Belarus top circles. I think if he dies, uh, Kremlin would try to immediately come up uh, self-appointing the successor and saying, "Listen, this is the guy. We have to. You have to obey. We have chosen him. And if you disobey, if you do not accept the ruler appointed by Moscow, then you'll be in a lot of trouble. What happens next is a big question mark, because I'm pretty sure that even in uh, Lukashenko's ruling circles, there is zero enthusiasm about being trampled underfoot and completely subjugated by the crowd." So Kremlin thinks that they do have a plan, and probably, certainly, they do have, uh, that they already know they want to appoint after uh, Lukashenko goes. But will it be successful? I mean, we've seen already major failures, like attempts right. to take three days and, and all the rest. So how they execute that plan, that's a big question mark. And I, the, the other factor that, that that's kind of left out of this is, is Belarusian society, which is in a very different place today than it was even just a few years ago. I mean, this could turn into a revolutionary situation um, if, 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 if Lukashenko passes. And I'm just, given everything else that's going on, that we've discussed in this entire program and that we've been discussing on this podcast for the last year, all of the problems and the brittleness of the, of the Putin regime right now, um, it's damaged nature in the aftermath of Prigozhin's insurrection, the defeats on the battlefield, the economics, all of it. Does Russia have the bandwidth to even manage that at this point? This is what I, especially if Belarusian civil society is. 
I think no. Uh, Russia is not actually capable. And yes, we will see uh, Belarusian society rising up. I think to probably a similar extent that what happened uh, during the uh, Eastern European revolutions in uh, late 19th century. Yeah. Which was like totally unexpected by the Soviet government. Totally unexpected. Then whenever the system becomes a little bit weaker than people are used to, people immediately come up to the streets and, and demand change. I think this is very possible that this might also happen in Belarus. And I think Kremlin does not have anything in its arsenal beyond just plain brutal repression, like they execute every day uh, in Russia or in occupied territories of Ukraine. Uh, will uh, the post-Lukashenko government be capable of actually continuing this repressive course? And, or will there be some forces which might want to side up with civil society instead? We don't know. We can only guess. But I'm pretty sure that this will be another development for which the Kremlin is not truly prepared. They believe they got the things yeah. under control until they have it. Well, this is this is what I wanted to close on. We're bumping up towards the end. And the kind of the last thing I, I kind of wanted to, to talk about on my list here is something you just raised, this kind of 1989 phenomenon. Um, I, I, I did an article last year for foreign policy about this, making the argument that a Russian defeat in Ukraine would create the possibility for a 1989. Um, we could see political change in Georgia, for example, uh, which is basically a very pro-Western society governed by a pro-Russian government because it was bought and paid for by an oligarch with ties to the Kremlin, of course, Benzina Ivanishvili. So we could possibly see change in, 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 in Georgia. Ukraine is obvious where that's going. Uh, Moldova is moving very quickly west under, under Maya Sandu. But I would even go as far to say that this could include Belarus. And the optimist in me wants to believe this is true. Uh, sometimes I get a little bit ahead of my skis with my optimism. Uh, do you think we're th th that all of the events of the last year have basically put us on the path to a 1989 moment that would kind of completely change the zeitgeist right now? You would have a, a, a kind of flowering of democracy in these former Soviet countries, you know, not just Ukraine, but Georgia, Moldova, and even, dare I say, Belarus. Yes, definitely. We're heading towards another 1989 moment, also in Russia at some point, I believe. And you, you know that in Russia it happened later, actually, than in right. all these uh, Central Eastern European countries. But it will happen. And the mechanism, I saw it. I mean, I lived through that myself. And uh, 1989 also came after an unsuccessful attempt by Andropov to tighten the screws, because we had... Afghan war, uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. We've had near invasion of Poland and Polish martial law. We had the 1983 standoff. And, and actually, this was a very repressive time in Russia. We had uh, uh, many new political prisoners and uh, we had, uh, you know, court proceedings against rock musicians who were, you know, forbidden by Andropov and so on. But all of a sudden then, when government weakened to the point where it was possible for the people to speak up, people stood up and spoke up. This is what happened in 1980s. It will happen again. Uh, the, the resistance is there. People are just waiting for the right moment when the authorities weaken enough so that there will not be any more this catastrophic uh, barbaric repression. This 1989 moment is ahead of us, I'm sure. I mean, I want to share your optimism on Russia. I just, but you think you think the resistance truly is there because I don't see it right now. Um, you are probably the most prominent Russian opposition leader who is not in prison, um, and, and I don't see I don't see a lot going on in Russian society right now. I, I understand the repression is strong. Am I? What am I missing? You're smiling. What am I missing? Because you don't read my messengers, which are <laughs> I read. You know. Yes. I'm I'm one of the I'm one of the most popular hosts on the Russian opposition YouTube, and I really get like thousands of messages from across the country every day. This is one of the most pleasant things to read. So I know that the resistance is out there, but people really are afraid of these lengthy prison terms. Prison Russian prison breaks your life. This is how it happens. So nobody wants to go to jail. But people also want uh, this this nightmare and Putinism to end. One, once it is safe to do so, they will speak up. 
It's it's a sleeping giant which one day you will see awakening. So you would see the change in Russia coming later, years after we would see the change in places like Georgia and Belarus and elsewhere in the former Soviet space. This 1989 moment maybe followed by a 1991 moment is that is that is that your your contention i think so i i see a lot of similarities again being inside the system in the 80s and uh knowing a lot about what happens now i see a lot of similarities and actually everybody wants normalcy everybody wants peace everybody wants this aggressive and repressive mafia to be gone people are just afraid once this fear recedes, once the system gets weaker, we will see 1989, 1991, and uh, believe me, it is all ahead of us. Well, that is a very good optimistic note to wrap up the show this week. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power of Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Ryan Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK Dowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Vilnius, Lithuania, which is one of my favorite cities in the world, has been a leading Russian opposition figure, Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and for a Russia without lawlessness and corruption, Vladimir also served as Deputy Russian Energy Minister. Vladimir, thank you so much for an enlightening discussion and making me and our listeners a lot smarter. Thank you. Great to be with you again. Great to be with you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Critical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Critical blog, and access all Power Critical products powervertical.org and for now you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical and you can also follow us on threads at Power Vertical. Please do. We are trying to build up our threads following. The Power Vertical podcast will take a hiatus next week as I will be traveling but we will be back in action in the second week in August. Until then I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. Okay, okay.